Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about planning for incapacity with the power of attorney is Lindsay Sarowitz. Lindsay has been with Handler and Levine since 2013. She is an associate with the firm and regularly represents individuals, including federal government employees, in preparing their estate plans consisting of wills, trusts, powers of attorney, healthcare directives, and other estate planning documents. She also represents estates and trustees in regarding to the descendants' issues, helping families, helping guide families through probate and trust administration following the loss of a loved one. Ms. Sarowitz is a member of the Bar in Maryland and District of Columbia and practices regularly in both jurisdictions. As part of her practice, Lindsay provides estate planning seminars to federal government employees through the National Institute of Transition Planning. How are you doing today, Lindsay? Hi, Jason. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Very much so. I'm looking forward to this uh, particular webinar. Before we get started, Lindsay, uh, for those joining us today, if you have any questions, please type those in. And time permitting, we will do everything we can to get to those uh, questions. So, Lindsay, what is a power of attorney and why do we need one? Sure, great question. Um, so, a power of attorney, first I want to say it's one of the two lifetime documents that I talk to clients about. So the reason I call it a lifetime document, the other one being the healthcare directive or the power of attorney for health care, is um, because these documents are good while you're alive, but they die with you. So I think that that's a good distinction to make from the beginning because every now and again, I'll get a client that calls and says, you know, my mom passed away last week, but I'm still writing checks for her because I'm her power of attorney. And that's not allowed. Um, you may have the authority under a different document, but the power of attorney dies with you. So, so that's something important to note at the beginning. Um, but everyone needs the power of attorney and the healthcare directive, which we're not really talking about today, from the time they turn 18 until the time they die, no matter what their personal situation is, no matter what their financial situation is, whether they're married or single or divorced or have kids or no kids, no one's legally permitted to step in for you and handle your financial matters if you become incapacitated. Um, so that's why we have the power of attorney, which is a document that allows you as the principal, so to speak, um, to name someone as your agent. That person sometimes referred to as your attorney in fact um, in that document. And they are the person that you name to act for you in regard to your assets and to make legal and financial decisions for you. Um, so people very often think uh, that if they're married, they don't need a power of attorney, um, but that's not true. Your spouse is not legally your agent by virtue of marriage or by virtue of intent, really. Even if you want them to be able to do everything for you, that intent is not enough. You have to have the legal document. So although your spouse will uh, likely be able to unilaterally access separate assets or uh, or rather not your separate assets, your um, joint assets, so your joint bank accounts and things like that, um, they won't be able to access your separate assets, change your beneficiary designations or even refinance or sell jointly held real estate if you become incapacitated and don't have a valid power of attorney. And one way I think of it is, um, you know, if you've ever sold real estate, um, 
you need two signatures on the deed, right? So it's the same sort of thing that they need two signatures for that too, so. Gotcha. Um, so Lindsay, what happens if I become incapacitated and I don't have a power of attorney? Yes, good question. So if you become incapacitated and you do need someone to step in for you, act for you, for example, access your bank accounts, pay your bills, um, someone such as your spouse, your child, even the nursing home where you're living will have to ask the court to appoint them as guardian of your property. So that's different than guardian of your person. That's your medical stuff. But guardian of your property is your financial stuff. Um, that person's going to have to file a petition with the court, probably prepared by an attorney. So anytime I say attorney, you can see dollar signs. I won't be insulted. Uh, you know, attorneys cost money. So an attorney will have to prepare the petition most likely. Another attorney will be appointed for you as the um, uh, allegedly incapacitated person. An investigator will have to come out and uh, see whether a guardianship is necessary. So you can see how the costs can really quickly add up, even if it's what we call an uncontested guardianship. You know, the whole family's agreeing. Once they're in disagreement, forget about it. You know, it can take forever. It can be very costly when it's contested. So um, to avoid all of this, um, we create a power of attorney while you're alive and well, meaning while you have capacity to create that document, naming the person that you want to act for you and the powers you want them to have. Uh, I want to talk about financial powers of attorney. I understand that there are different types. Is that true? Yes, that is true. Um, so there's a lot of different or several different types of powers of attorney um, based on where you live, first of all, and also whether you want your agent to have very broad powers, which would be a general power of attorney, or whether you want some limitations, which would be a limited power of attorney, which makes sense. Um, I do want to say calling it a general power of attorney is kind of aspirational. You can never write on a piece of paper, I want my agent to be able to do everything that I can do. You have to specifically list out every power you want your agent to have. So for example, it's really important to remember, you know, if you help someone else with their finances, if you help your mom pay her rent maybe, um, and you want your agent to continue doing that, or if you want your agent to continue making gifts consistent with your prior pattern of giving, it's very important that you specifically state that in your document, because without that, your agent is only allowed to use your money for your benefit, which is what you want, right? You don't want your agent to be able to go out and decide who to spend your money on. But again, if you are helping someone else, it's very important to consider that. Some other powers you want might want your agent to have, um, the power to access your assets, of course, the power to change your estate plan, update your beneficiary designations, sell your real estate, access your safe deposit box, the list goes on and on. Generally, with our powers of attorney, we think of it, or I think of it like a toolbox, kind of. So we put all these tools in the toolbox so that your agent can have access and can do those things if necessary. If they don't need a tool in the toolbox, that's fine too. Um, and then if you wanna limit your agent's authority, you can do that with a limited power of attorney. For example, 
if you want to limit it to a specific event like a real estate closing, a specific time period, or even a specific asset like a certain piece of real estate or maybe a business interest, um, that's how you do a limited when you would do a limited power of attorney. Um, and then some states also have what's called a statutory power of attorney, which is the document that's, you know, by statute um, kind of set out in that format. Um, I want to take a step back, if you don't mind. So you had mentioned that what if family members don't. So you're licensed in Maryland and D.C., right, Lindsay? Yes, I'm currently waving into Virginia, so we can okay. help Virginia as well, but yes. Okay, so a question. Uh, if you've got a family member, and you know, you mentioned that a lot of times family members don't get along. So if you have family members in other states, what do you do in that situation? I know your client is the one in either right now D.C. or Maryland, but what about other you know other family members in other states what do you do yeah so if there's someone that uh or a family that doesn't get along unfortunately it can lead to litigation right and sometimes we see family members that all get their own attorneys and they all show up at the hearing or what have you um and and that is a very unfortunate situation and that's a great example of why it's so important to have this document at the outset right uh, so who should i name as my agent then um, so that is a really important thing to consider, and my clients ask me that all the time. Um, so if you're married, a logical first choice might be your spouse. Um, and for those people, the real issue is who to name as backup, right? Because you never want to name just one person, because if that person also becomes incapacitated or passes away, uh, and you haven't updated your documents, it's like you didn't name anybody. So you always want to have a backup uh, and as many backups as you want, really. It's just words on a piece of paper for us. I'm happy to put three backups if someone wants, you know, because I never want them to run out. But so if you have a spouse and an adult child, typically someone will name their spouse as the primary and then the adult child as the contingent. Um, but issues come up when a client isn't married doesn't have adult children or doesn't have much uh, confidence in their adult children. Um, so for those people, um, they they ask, you know, who should I name? I have kids that fight or kids that aren't responsible enough or what have you or no kids. Um, what should I look for? So we always say that when naming someone for any fiduciary role, so uh, an agent under your power of attorney, a personal representative or executor, those terms are interchangeable under your will, a trustee under your trust, we say that there's two characteristics to look for, trust and common sense. When I say trust, a lot of people have a nice long list, and when I say common sense, the list is often cut in half. Um, but when I say common sense, of course, you know why you need to trust someone. I don't need to explain that. They're going to access your assets and all that. But the reason I say common sense is your agent doesn't have to have any special abilities. You don't have to name a lawyer. You don't have to name a CPA or a financial advisor or anyone with any special talents or anything like that. You just have to have someone that has the wherewithal to think like, oh, I'm filing my own taxes. I better send mom stuff to the CPA too, right? They don't need to know how to do it, but they can hire professionals to assist them with their, with their job. So that's why we say the trust and the common sense uh, parts of it. Um, 
And there's a couple neat things that I really like that we can do with um, our, our powers of attorney. So one of them we refer to as transparency. So let's say you have three adult children and you name one of them to act for you, right? Um, the one with the most trust and common sense. Uh, so you name that one adult child, but say uh, they're, they're curious about what's going on and maybe the other two are, are calling that child weekly to find out, you know, where are you spending mom's money? Why are you buying the groceries at Whole Foods? She can't taste the difference, just go to Giant and so on and so forth. And eventually that child who has their own family, maybe their own profession, they stop answering the phone, let's say. So then the other kids get, get curious and get uh, more and more suspicious because they're not getting information now um, and they start alleging things, mis misusing money and things like that. We never want people to be in that position. So for people like that, this transparency tool can be very helpful. It says that uh, the agent has to provide accountings or simply duplicate bank statements, which most banks will set up for you for those other two children if they request it. So you see now they actually see where the money's going. They know that you're not misusing it. Um, another thing is checks and balances, which can be really helpful. Um, and when I say that, you know, remember a couple minutes ago, I said these really big powers, like the power to sell your real estate or change your estate plan, those are big things. So maybe you want your agent to be able to do the everyday paying your bills, filing your taxes without anyone else's consent. But maybe for those big powers, you want your other two kids in that example to have to sign off on it. So that's how we can use that checks and balances thing that I mentioned to, uh, to kind of give that ability for everyone to have a say. Um, so the last thing I want to mention on this part is uh, people often ask me, especially in that scenario where I just said, you know, you have three adult children, people do often ask if they can name multiple agents. Um, the answer is yes, but, right? <laughs> um, uh, you can technically, but it's very important to think it through. I have seen many situations that end up blowing up because there's, too many cooks in the kitchen, right? Um, so really consider um, uh, how your children work together, how they get along today, because remember, once they're gonna act for you, this is a very stressful time, right? You're incapacitated most likely, you can't, you can't do things for yourself. So they're not gonna be the best version of themselves most likely. Uh, so how people act under stress is, is sometimes different. And then what their work styles are. If one kid gets stuff done as, you know, very early, writes the checks as soon as the bill comes in the mail, and the other one is constantly begging for forgiveness on late fees, uh, it's probably not a good idea to set them up to work together. It's probably just gonna set them up for failure. So those are a few things to consider if you're thinking about naming multiple agents. Lindsay, so when does the power of attorney become effective then? So there's a few different options here. Um, you have to define in the power of attorney when it's going to become effective. Um, the most common choices, there's three of them uh, that I find are immediately, meaning as soon as you sign the document, your agent can act for you. 
or springing uh, upon incapacity, meaning the agent doesn't have any power to act until you're deemed incapacitated. The document will say how incapacity is determined. Uh, typically, it's by two doctor's notes. So um, that's, again, immediate and then springing. And then the third is kind of a hybrid. It can be immediate and then springing. So immediate for the first agent and then springing for the backup. So sometimes people will want that if they're married, you know, my spouse can act for me right away, I don't care, he can access everything right now, but then for my backup, I want that only upon my incapacity. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say, which one, I mean, I think you can't recommend, but is which one is more common, I guess? It's is it possible? It's interesting because when it comes to people, I'd say when people are not married and are not elderly, um, usually they want it springing. That's what I see. They don't usually want to give anyone that power today. However, when people are married, I've seen both sides of it. I've seen spouses say, yeah, I don't care. You can access all of our joint accounts anyway. Why not do it immediate? And then I've seen the flip side of that saying, well, I'm fine, you know, I'm good today. You don't need that access right now. But as people age, it often, not always, but often makes sense to make it immediate so that, uh, you know, the kids can step in and do things just if the elderly parent doesn't feel like it, um, you know, without needing those letters of incapacity. So, Lindsay, let me ask this question. And so we talked about you can have various agents. Um, mm -hmm. How often should this this power of attorney be reviewed? I mean, because if things do change, you know, with kids and whatever, maybe uh, somebody falls out. How often do you recommend reviewing this document? Yes, I'm glad you asked that. Um, so I always tell my clients with all the documents we do for them. So typically we do a whole estate plan, right? So that's a power of attorney, a healthcare directive, a will, sometimes trust, beneficiary designations, all that stuff. And I typically tell clients to review their estate plan every three years or so, two or three years on their own to make sure it still makes sense to them. And then sit down and have a conversation with me. Right now that's on Zoom, but usually it's you can come in and, and sit with me um, every five years or so, because you know what changes have happened in your life. I know what changes have happened in the law. And unless we sit down together, we don't really see the other side of it. Can a power of attorney be revoked after it is activated or has it becomes effective? Oh, it can absolutely be revoked. You can revoke it by destroying it. You can revoke it by writing a written revocation. You can revoke it by um, doing a new one. Uh, so yes, it's it's not something um, that can't be revoked unless you lose capacity. So once you don't have capacity anymore, you can no longer revoke it, which makes sense. Understand. Um, so I know in your bio that you do work with a lot of government employees. Are there mm -hmm. issues regarding power of attorneys that are different for government employees versus non-government employees? Some, yeah. So one example is for people who uh, have a TSP. Um, the TSP is a very uh, special uh, government uh, 
benefit. And so they actually have a, a specific uh, TSP power of attorney, which is actually available. Uh, we have a, a link on our website to uh, government uh, beneficiary designations and government employee links. Uh, so that's uh, handlerlevine.com, H-A-N-D-L-E-R-L-E-V-I-N-E.com, um, because we do deal with government employees so much. So there are some special issues with them. Okay, uh, one last question. I want to go back to that toolbox that you mentioned, which sounds like a really good idea because, like you said, it, you're not just finance or you're not just health. So is there a certain time in somebody's life when that toolbox really needs to be full as far as power of attorney for each each specific area? Yes. So, so just to clarify, the power of attorney for finances is a completely separate document than the power okay. of attorney healthcare. Um, Got it. And, and I'd say filling that toolbox, so to speak, when I was talking about the power of attorney for finances, that's done at the time of creation. And like I said, every, um, every person from the time they turn 18 until the time they die needs, needs these documents for sure. Got it. Well, Lindsay, this has been really good information. How can people, how can people find you? Sure. So again, I'm at Handler and Levine. Um, we are located in Bethesda, Maryland. But again, we help people in Maryland, D.C., and Virginia with their estate plans. So wills, trusts, powers of attorney, health care directives, all that. And then on the other side of it, when they've lost a loved one um, with the administration of the estate through probate or trust administration. So that's Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, even though we're physically located in Maryland. Um, my email address is Lindsay. Z spelled L-I-N-D-S-E-Y at H-A-N-D-L-E-R-L-E-V-I-N-E dot com. So that's Lindsay at HandlerLevine.com. And our website is HandlerLevine.com. And um, my phone number is 301-961-6464, extension 3315. So people can reach out to me anytime with questions. Well, once again, Lindsay, thank you. There's a lot to for people to consider, and first thing they need to do is to call call you, call an attorney, and to have that that honest conversation about what they need to do for them and their loved ones, right? Yes, I agree. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. Well, thank you. Until next time, I'm your I'm your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging. <laughs>